0: Do you want to just say a couple sentences and we'll see if you break up at all?
1: Sure. The rain in Spain lies, falls mainly in the plane. Drain, main, what am I, what's the word I'm missing? Falls. Rain in Spain falls mainly in the plane? Yep. It sounds so,
0: wrong. Um, but you sound great to me, so I think we're good to go. From the studios of PostScript Media and Canary Media.
1: I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.
0: I'm ready to take that final leap, cross the valley of death, and invest in scaling up production because I'm promised a market at the other side, the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow.
1: There's always this chicken or egg problem. You want to create demand for new, low, or zero-carbon technologies, but in some sectors, those technologies basically don't exist yet. So how do you solve that? Enter advanced market
2: commitments. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a Frontier Forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events.
1: I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Some people call them hard-to-abate sectors. I prefer to call them opportunities for big moats, but whatever you call them, here are the seven horsemen of the industrial climate apocalypse, so to speak. Steel, aluminum, cement, chemicals, aviation, shipping, and trucking. Add them up, and they represent about a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, and they're the sectors where the existing, fully commercialized, mature, and ready-to-deploy technology will take us the shortest distance toward net zero. So how do you solve for that? Well, it takes a village, obviously, and residents of that village certainly include supportive policy and innovative technology. Uh, We obviously have a role to play there as well, but the mayor of the village is the demand side. You want to be sure that if you build it, it being a low or zero carbon alternative to the thing causing trouble from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective in these sectors, if you build it, they will come. Enter the idea of advanced market commitments. Some of you may have heard of one of these, which was born out of Stripe's early work in carbon removal and is now called the Frontier Fund. Annoyingly, the same name as my fund at EIP, which came first. But there's also another broader advanced market commitment in the works that I think maybe actually hasn't gotten the attention in climate tech circles that it warrants. And that's the First Movers Coalition, or the FMC, which is an initiative born out of the office of John Kerry, the US Special Presidential Climate Envoy, Former Secretary of State, former Senator, known windsurfer, you know who John Kerry is. Anyway, I think the FMC is super interesting. And it also happens to be the brainchild of a friend of mine. Varun Sivaram, who is the Managing Director and Senior Advisor for Clean Energy and Innovation in Secretary Kerry's office, has been a big part of bringing the First Movers Coalition into the world. Uh, And I wanted to bring him on to talk about what it is, how it works, but more importantly, how you can use these advanced market commitments as a way to accelerate the path into the market for these fundamentally new technologies that we're going to need sooner rather than later in order to get to the challenge of later, which is reaching net zero. Here's Varun. Varun, welcome to Catalyst.
0: Thanks so much, Phil, for having me.
1: I don't know if you remember this, but I believe that the first podcast I ever did, which was in, it was like circa 2000, I don't know, 15, something like that. You were the guest on the very first one. I, you may or may not recall doing that and or and or what we talked about.
0: But do you remember that first ever podcast? I remember doing the pod. I didn't realize it was the first one. It was uh it was perovskite solar, right?
1: It was either you we we did a really early one with Jesse Jenkins too and I can't remember which one was which one was the first. We've had Jesse back since then a few times and this is the first time that we've had you back. So whether you were first or second, it's long overdue. Uh and A lot has happened since 2015 or whenever we chatted before. The main thing, as is pertinent to this conversation, being that you took on a new role in the Biden administration soon after uh, Biden's inauguration. And you've been working with Secretary John Kerry, who has a title that I'm going to tell you to tell me (laughs) what his title is and what it means and what you've been working on with him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was honored to join actually on day one of the Biden administration. uh, And I work for Secretary John Kerry, who is the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. And actually, that that big, long title um, importantly turns on one word, presidential. This is the first time we've ever had a special presidential envoy for climate. We've previously had special envoys for climate. Um, But now Secretary Kerry reports directly to President Biden and is empowered to lead the United States' international climate diplomacy. And I'm his managing director and senior advisor for clean energy and technology innovation. And so I lead his teams that focus on helping countries around the world transition to clean energy and adopt emerging technologies, um, which is something that I think you and I talked about the last time we were on the pod. So maybe
1: help me orient, for folks who are not like embedded in the Washington ecosystem, right, There are these special envoys, in this case, a special presidential envoy, and there's some remit, which you just described the brief version of, and we'll get into a lot more detail on. How does that job interact with, like, the State Department, which is doing all of our international diplomacy, or the DOE, which is focused on energy? Like, what's the, where do you sit, and how do you know what you're able to and supposed to do if you are, you and John Kerry, trying to make this happen?
0: Totally. I mean, look, it's such an important role precisely because so many different U.S. agencies touch on climate, right? Our Department of Energy is developing the technologies of the future. Um, uh, Our Department of State, as you mentioned, has diplomats all over the world that uh, uh, conduct U.S. foreign policy. So it's been critical to have this new role, Secretary Kerry, the first uh, U.S. principal to actually sit on the White House National Security Council, who is solely dedicated to climate, It's been critical to have him to play kind of this coordinating function. So uh, when we go, for example, to to the COP, COP26 in Glasgow last year, COP27 this year in Egypt, Secretary Kerry leads the entire U.S. delegation, which uh, in both cases has involved several cabinet secretaries. And um, we now speak with one voice, right? We're we're able to coordinate all of the different things that the U.S. government is doing both at home, the IRA, for example— and abroad, our you know development finance corporation investments in emerging economies. We coordinate all of that with one voice, uh, one negotiating position, um, and a bunch of uh, really cool announcements that just came out in Egypt.
1: Yes, yeah, so we'll talk about some of those. But so, is it appropriate to just in in layperson's terms think of the role of the the special presidential envoy on climate as sort of the voice of the U.S. government uh, abroad? specifically as it pertains to climate change.
0: Yep, absolutely. I, I think that's a that's an accurate uh, summary.
1: Cool. All right. Well, there's a lot that you guys have been working on and gotten done during that time, but I think we want to spend most of our time today on this one initiative, which I know is near and dear to your heart in particular, which is called the First Movers Coalition. But before we get into what the First Movers Coalition specifically is and does, let's talk about the premise behind it, which is it's a you know, you didn't invent this idea. It's a form of an advanced market commitment. Can you talk a little bit about like what advanced market commitments are and why I know even before you joined the administration, you were sort of hung up on like, can we leverage this tool to do something on climate?
0: Yeah. Well, look, I, as you said, I definitely didn't invent the advanced market commitment. Um, and I was mostly, I was inspired by how successful it's been outside of our own field of clean energy technologies. Um For example, in the global health space, advanced market commitments, which are basically promises to purchase a certain product that meets a set of specifications, even if those products don't exist today on the market. Those advanced market commitments have enabled us to get the pneumococcal vaccine a couple decades ago. Um, Most recently, advanced market commitments brought COVID vaccines onto the market. It was the U.S. government saying, I promise to buy X doses of this as-yet-uninvented technology if you bring it to market and it passes a certain performance threshold, right? It reduces the incidence of COVID by X percent. Um, And these things have been going on for even longer. NASA has been doing this for like 70 years, right? In the 1960s, uh, NASA provided the early market for integrated circuits in the Apollo mission. And that's why we have Silicon Valley. Um, Most recently, NASA provided these milestone payments for SpaceX. So any company that could actually meet these performance thresholds and eventually be a private manned spaceflight, would get payments from NASA every time they met the performance specifications. So that was kind of a, a form of advanced market commitment or milestone payment. So it, it stands to reason that in our field, clean technologies, and look, shale you, you look at you know dozens of these every week, um, we need a lot of them to come to market, and most of them that we need have not made it to market. Some of them have, as we know, but most have not. Um, so it stands to reason that we should be able to cross-apply this tool from other sectors to clean technologies. And it's just never been done in a big way. And that was kind of the inspiration for me behind creating the First Movers Coalition.
1: And we'll get into the mechanics of it, but what it strikes me that's interesting about the idea of the advanced market commitment um, is that it sort of creates a forcing function on both sides, on the supply and demand side. So it comes from the demand side, making these forward commitments and saying, if you meet these criteria... I will buy. It's an if you if if they build it, we will come. Strategy for them. So it's a forcing function, then, which we should talk about how this actually works to do it, if it if the thing does indeed arrive and meets the specs. But it also sets out a, a fairly clear set of criteria on the other side, the supply side, the companies that are building the technologies that will meet those criteria to say, okay, well, you know what you need to hit. You kind of know the timeline underneath under which you need to hit it. Uh, and if you do all those things, then there's demand waiting for you, on the other side. So the the mechanism provides like an interesting push on both sides of the supply demand equation. I think
0: a hundred percent. Now I, I, I do want to like just caveat what you just said. Um, because you might be led to think, aha, an advanced market commitment solves all of my problems, right? It creates the early market commitment, the demand, and then therefore the suppliers have all the incentive they need to bring a new technology to market. And so this can be my silver bullet. It's not a silver bullet. Um, in all of the other examples from the other sectors, the technologies actually needed to be in development for the advanced market commitment to work, right? mRNA vaccines have been in development for decades before uh, we made an advanced market commitment and then they actually came to the market. Um, but, if you have your full ecosystem of support, you have uh, government funding and private funding for research and development and demonstration, you have a thriving venture capital ecosystem, you know, shale is making lots of investments, and you have a set of advanced market commitments, you kind of close the loop. You say, aha, technologies are being developed, and now we have that final push, that market, that beachhead market now exists for these technologies to come to scale. And the innovators, the suppliers who are producing them say – I'm ready to take that final leap, cross the valley of death, and invest in scaling up production because I'm promised a market at the other side, the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So
1: as with most things, I think, uh, the devil is, of course, going to be in the details, right, on whether this actually has an impact and where and how and how fast. So let's mostly spend our time talking about the details. Um, First of all, at the high level, what is the First Movers Coalition, like, fundamentally? Is it, what, what is it? Is it an organization? Is it an initiative? Who is it led by? Who
0: governs it? Like, what is it? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll try out my elevator pitch. Um, the first Movers Coalition is President Joe Biden's flagship public-private partnership to scale clean technologies. It's a partnership between the U.S. government and the World Economic Forum. And it assembles a coalition that today is 66 companies, some of the biggest companies in the world. Each of which is making a purchase commitment, an advanced market commitment, to buy uh, a a technology in one of these hard-to-abate sectors in 2030. And that set of commitments amounts to about $12 billion of purchasing power, purchasing commitments, in 2030. So that's, in essence, what the First Movers Coalition is. And since we launched it, we've actually brought on additional government partners. So it's no longer just the United States and the World Economic Forum. Even though we created it, now we have nine government partners, India and the United Kingdom and Germany, et cetera, and Sweden. So it, in effect, it's a, it's a consortium of governments and companies, and the companies are the ones making the commitments to buy these emerging technologies.
1: Now, this is maybe an important distinction to make, because there the one other um, version of an advanced market commitment in this space, I think, that's sort of Uh, active today is is the Frontier Fund, which was born out of Stripes' carbon removal efforts. That's a version of an advanced market commitment, too. In that case, it's a fund. It's a dedicated pool of capital that will make the purchases directly on behalf of the parties who've been a part of it. First Movers Coalition is a little different, right? It's not a pool of capital. So the buyers are saying, I will buy X tons of this thing, but they're not Putting money into a bank account or committing capital into a bank account for some third party to do the procurement,
0: right? So um, close. First, let me just say the Frontier folks are fantastic. It's a great initiative they've developed. So we launched the First Movers Coalition in November 2021, and then a few months later, Frontier came to market focusing just on carbon dioxide removal. We focused on some other hard-to-abate sectors. After Frontier came to market, we then we said, look, this, this model is wonderful. Um, And so we added the carbon dioxide removal sector as well. And several companies that have not joined Frontier were then able to join the First Movers Coalition. So together, we have large coverage over the corporate world. And the way we structured the carbon dioxide removal commitment, at least for our three champions, um, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Salesforce, is almost exactly as how Frontier has done it. It's a dollar commitment. Um, But uh, you're right, Shale, for all of our other sectors— for s- steel or trucking. The commitment is, like Ford Motor Company says, in 2030, I will buy 10% of my steel using near zero carbon steel. Um, so it's, it's a percentage of their supply chain is the commitment they have made to purchase uh, in, in 2030. So that's you know a, a qualitative difference from how Frontier is doing it, which is a dollar value.
1: Right. It's much more similar to, I mean, anybody who's been around the renewables world in the U.S. for the past decade will know that Uh, you know, at least I'll I'll editorialize for a second, but in my view, the two things that drove the adoption of wind and solar that we've seen to date are basically the federal tax credits and then state-level renewable portfolio standards. And those state-level RPSs were structured much more like what you're describing here in the First Movers Coalition, which is, in this case, it was mandated by the state upon utilities, but effectively the same thing, saying that by year X, each utility will have Y percent of their electricity generation mix come from renewables. And that was a huge, huge driver in the early days of renewables. It's what got us to where we are today. So I think as long as there are teeth or as long as those commitments are real, this can be easily just as effective of, as the dollar commitment.
0: Totally. And, and, and I just want to make the point that like, um, th- there's a beautiful analogy here. Just as you said, for renewables— It was the supply push incentives like the ITC for solar or the PTC for wind and the RPS at the state level that created demand, early markets. There's now this beautiful interplay between the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which provides supply incentives, and the First Movers Coalition, which provides that that demand. Because there isn't elsewhere a demand commitment or demand requirement for someone to buy X percent clean steel, right, or X percent clean aviation fuels. By the way, truly clean aviation fuels, not just SAFs. And the the hope, therefore, is this interplay makes the IRA work. You can imagine, like, the IRA might make, and, and I can walk through the numbers, the IRA makes uh, clean steel almost as or as competitive as dirty steel, Right. But if you're a demander, you still have no incentive to go buy the clean versus the dirty stuff because the, the clean stuff is untested. The dirty stuff is like fairly conventional and you have a bankable track record. Um, and so this first movers coalition creates that early demand that will therefore induce suppliers to take advantage of the IRA incentives, build the supply because they're sure they'll actually get an offtake.
1: All right. So let's dig into the details a little bit on how this how this actually works. So um Let's start with, name the, I'm sure you could do this by now by heart, name the seven sectors that First Movers Coalition is active in at the moment, and then we'll pick a couple that we want to go deep into.
0: Sure. So the the eight sectors are steel, aluminum, cement, chemicals, which is the last one we haven't yet launched, shipping, trucking, aviation, and carbon dioxide removal. These hard-to-abate sectors represent about a third of global emissions today, and they're the ones... You know, as as all of the listeners know, th- this is where the energy transition has not started. And so on current course and speed, this will be a majority of humanity's emissions by mid-century. So that's—and and it's also where the technology needs are concentrated, in these heavy industry and long-distance transportation sectors. So that's why we picked these sectors for the FMC.
1: Right, which is sort of a key point. You can amass significant buying power with a relatively small number of relatively large commitments from big
0: buyers, basically. Well, I do want to make the point that, like, remember, each of these commitments, like Ford Motor, is saying 10% of my supply chain, not 100%, but 10% of my supply chain is going to be near zero carbon steel by 2030. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. It's, you know, 90% of their supply chain is not this. But this technology is not anywhere in the market. And so for a technology that's yet to scale... This beachhead is looks quite enormous for an up-and-coming innovator. 10% of Ford's supply chain is actually quite a large number. Um, but if, we, if, if you try and make it a larger percentage of a supply chain from these enormous buyers early on in 2030, you'll fail because the technology simply cannot scale that quickly to meet extraordinary demand.
1: To what extent is the recruiting process... I know I want to get into some individual sectors, but I'm too interested in this question. Um, to what extent is the recruiting process around companies sort of uh, accelerated by a, like, keeping up with the Joneses sort of effect? Like, you're like, Ford said they're going to do it, so now you go to
0: BMW and say, well, Ford's doing it, so, like, why aren't you? It is, I mean, getting that initial seed of companies was so critical, right? Um, there's no way we could have gotten to 66 without the first 24, without the first 12, um, because peer pressure is uh, is a large part of the recruiting process. Look, when we recruit... Um, that there's a few different things we can bring to bear. Um, the, the first is we make an appeal to companies' competitive advantage. We say, look, in the future, a decade, two decades from now, you're going to live in a world where policies are net zero aligned. You're going to be forced to buy uh, clean steel. If you're a first mover and you secure those supplies of clean steel early on, you, get some, you exercise those muscles about how to offtake uh, these new materials, well, you'll be ahead of the game and you'll have cornered the market and everybody else will pay a lot more for clean steel. So that's that's one argument we make. Another argument we make is, you know, this is kind of the highest leverage thing you can possibly do, um, compared to all your other commitments. Um, third is what you said, shale, keep up with the Joneses, keep up with the the Fords and GMs, right? Uh, and and that's that's proven to be effective. And then fourth is, look, I want to be unabashed about this. We will celebrate you. President Biden got up and said, you know, this is my flagship initiative at COP twenty six. the White House has put out fact sheets every time we've had an expansion. So this is an opportunity to be celebrated as a climate leader. And and I think that's meaningful for for a lot of companies.
2: Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 pm Eastern. Register for free at slash events or click the link in the show notes.
1: All right, let's, uh, let's pick a sector or two and talk through the details. Again, I think, you know, uh, the devil is in them as to what the impact is going to be. So uh, you've mentioned a couple times the steel one, so maybe let's, let's spend some time there. So start with um, who's committed to the steel. Uh, steel commitments. Who's made steel commitments? And then, uh, how have you gone about defining what the actual commitment is? Like, what defines clean steel? How much needs to be purchased? Like, what are the what What is the what is the nuance that needed to get baked in here for this to be a real kind of a commitment?
0: Yeah. Well, so uh, I'm glad you started with steel. Steel is so important. It's you know eight percent of global carbon emissions and and rising. Like, you look at India. Um, India's largest source of emissions growth, it's not coal power, it's steel, iron and steel. So critical for us to decarbonize um, primary steel, the the production of new steel. Uh, So we have 18 companies that have committed to uh, the steel commitment. They include major automakers. um, I think I mentioned Ford, um, Volvo, Scania. Uh, They include utilities like Engie. They include um, renewable energy producers who use big wind turbines that use steel, for example, in um, Invenergy or Orsted or Renew Power. So the, it's a wide range of folks who, who use steel and are making this purchasing commitment, actually, therefore, for a range of different types of steel. And you asked a critical question, which is what goes into making the standard by which we call steel near zero carbon steel? We're, we're walking this balance, right? We, we have to pick something that uh, is feasible in 2030 for companies to meet 10% of their supply chain from. But We want to make sure that every single commitment is technology-forcing, that we're bringing new technologies into the market. The commitment can't be weak enough that you can use an existing technology and get away with it, right? We want to bring to market these new technologies. So each of these commitments was time-bound. It's in 2030 is when you make the purchase. It is innovation-forcing, but technology-neutral. We're not going to tell you how you do it. You, You can make your steel no matter which route you choose, electrolysis or green hydrogen. But ultimately... You have to meet this very low threshold. In this particular case for primary steel with no scrap input, it's 0.4 tons of carbon dioxide per ton of steel. Um, And that actually, that that standard-setting process um, is so important because now we've gone around the world, the G7, the IEA have all adopted this standard for what counts as near-zero carbon steel. And now we're doing the standard-setting process for all the other sectors. So every time we set a standard, it is the most ambitious standard for that material ever set, right? Our cement standard, we just launched it in Egypt, is the most ambitious cement standard. And now we have to do the hard work of helping our government partners to also accept, and our industry associations that we work with, to also accept that this is the standard for what counts as near-zero carbon materials or fuels, etc. Um, but without setting that standard carefully and without getting alignment from everybody— you're not going to be technology forcing, right? You can imagine um, a standard for low carbon cement or low carbon steel that basically just requires you to swap out uh, dirty energy for renewable uh, electricity, right? That's something we already know how to do
1: for sure or in the case of cement like it's this is easier than with steel to be honest but with cement there's lots you can do that can have an incremental effect on embedded emissions you can you know blend in more supplementary cementitious materials into a concrete blend and yeah you know, like and that gets you a little bit of the way there but not all the
0: way there just to nerd out on what you just said the cement commitment we spent like 9 months developing the cement commitment so that you couldn't just get away with SCM substitution you probably, again, I don't want to specify a technology pathway, but the, the standard is so rigorous, stringent, that you probably have to use CCUS in order to meet our clean cement standard.
1: Unless you've got a technology that doesn't require CCUS and doesn't produce any emissions. Um, I think you know we're investors in Sublime. Uh, there, there are a couple of them. But anyway, the, the point being, um, I want to come back to steel for a second. So I do appreciate and want to acknowledge the importance of the technology forcing function component. It draws an important distinction from, you know, a lot of what we've seen absent, um, you know, a sort of standard setting body like the First Movers Coalition is companies voluntarily make their own net zero commitments and then they make a bunch of announcements of things that they're doing on the path toward the net zero commitments. And it, those two things don't always really line up, right? A lot of times you'll have like a bullet point list of things that a company says that they're doing and they're all pretty incremental things. And it's not really clear how you go from the list of bullet points of things they're doing today to the true net zero commitment off in the future. And I think the way that I think about these like 2030 technology forcing function commitments um, from FMC is that they bridge that gap. It's like longer time horizon than the things the company needs to be committing to doing today. Um, but it's the clear things that need to happen in order for us to get from a 2030, 10% low carbon steel to 2050,
0: a hundred percent low carbon steel. Look, I, first of all, I, I really appreciate what you're saying there. It's it's dead on. I do want to say the North Star for the First Movers Coalition is not actually how can a company get to its own net zero emissions, right? If a company like Ford Motor achieves 10% near zero carbon steel by 2030, sure, it, it is now easier for Ford to get to 100% near zero carbon steel by 2050. But like the impact they're going to have is well beyond their own supply chain. Because they acted early in 2030, Ford is going to make clean steel cheaper for literally every country on earth. They're materially going to move us down the cost curve. Um, And so this has like extra company impact. And that's why this is so important. Um, I think, you know, many companies may follow many different paths to eventually get to net zero. And I agree with you. Most of the things that companies say today... Make no sense. Like they have no actual path to get to net zero. Um, I think our companies are going to have an easier time getting to net zero, but the impact they're having in twenty thirty is way more. And and it's important to say that because like making an FMC commitment is a really expensive way to reduce a small amount of emissions. Right. Like, um, well, uh, the, the IRA really helps with that because now there's no cost premium anymore. But before the IRA, there was a big green premium to to buy clean steel versus dirty steel. And so if you're going to decarbonize of your supply chain um, by using a new novel technology, like that's a really expensive, non-low-hanging fruit way to get yourself toward net zero, right? So I I just want to make the point that what companies are doing here, the biggest impact is what it will mean for the world, for steel plants all over the world. uh, They'll be cheaper, and we can build them sooner.
1: Putting on my skeptics hat for a second, um, I think the obvious question is what is the... What, what are the, where are the teeth here? Like, what's to stop one of these companies from making this commitment, getting all the accolades that they get today, and then 2030 rolls around and they say, ah, you know, the technologies weren't there or they weren't ready for us or it didn't meet our specs or whatever. We, we just didn't hit it. Sorry.
0: It's a very, very valid question. Um, so let me say a couple of things. Um, first, I do want to make the point that our companies are already acting. Um, now, steel is kind of an easier case. We'll start there. There there are harder cases like aviation where it's really tough to act right now. But let's take steel. We already have companies um, that are moving forward and purchasing small and sometimes large quantities of clean steel. Um, The first clean steel facility exists in Sweden now. Um, uh, Secretary Kerry inaugurated the first ever fossil-free steel truck uh, that Volvo made uh, Scania is going to meet their commitment well ahead of schedule. So we already have companies that are on track to meet some of their commitments. Um, again, some other sectors like aviation are a lot tougher. Um, the the second thing um, I'll say is, look, in, in doing this, I have spoken with all of our 66 companies. I th- this is just qualitative, but like I genuinely believe there's like a cultural shift underway. I talked to a big cement company Lafarge Holcim, and that CEO Jan Yenish has spent enough time with Secretary Kerry where he he now says. I'm committed to changing my procurement organization. I know it's going to cost me a lot more money, but I don't want to let Secretary Kerry down. Now, at the end of the day, where are the real teeth? Um, it's it's a reputational risk if you make a commitment and you don't actually meet your commitment, um, and and you could have, um, you know, down the road. You, you're right. You, you may have uh, you may have gotten the accolades up front, but down the road, uh, we expect this organization, the FMC, to continue. Uh, to be high profile for the you know through the decade, and so uh, we'll celebrate the companies that that definitely make their commitment. Um, but I, I I don't think it will be tenable for companies not to make them.
1: I think you got to the other risk, which is a lot more of a political risk than anything else, right? Like Secretary Kerry is not going to be the U.S. presidential special presidential envoy on climate for until twenty thirty. I'm guessing, you could tell me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, Joe Biden certainly won't be our president that whole time. Who knows what happens in the political sphere in the U.S. And so the FMC has to kind of last through whatever permutations of international politics and climate politics occur over the next eight years for it to continue to have a loud voice and play hopefully an increasing role there. So how do you think about like the longevity of the, um, and the staying power of the organization?
0: Look, I think- you're absolutely right. You know, governments change over time. There are a few different ways, though, that I think this, we've built some durability. Um, the first is, you know, CEOs going out and putting their name on the line. Um, I was particularly inspired just last week. Mads Nipper, the CEO of Orsted, went out and said, we do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Um, and, and we want to be one of those companies uh, that, that affixes this brand to our name because we're going to achieve this. It's really hard. Um, it's, it's hard to walk back from that, right? Uh, similarly, um Uh, Another way we've created durability is, sure, the the U.S. government historically, you and I know, has changed hands. uh, But now we have nine government partners, right? And so uh, we have a lot of governments, many of whom actually contribute to the, the financial underpinnings of this organization, to the secretariat, and sit on our governing board that will keep us very honest. Look, Sweden and India both have taken this leadership role on heavy industry decarbonization. I think it's one of the coolest things to happen in the past few years. They're both on our governing board. And I think Sweden and India are going to hold our feet to the fire no matter what happens uh, in the United States. And finally, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say we had a pretty good election uh, just now. Well, it wasn't perfect, but uh, I, I feel good about our chances uh, you know, now, 2024, and going forward. So this decade, I think we've kind of unleashed something that I hope will be durable.
1: So let's talk about uh – Aviation. We've talked about steel a little bit. I think aviation's the other interesting one. You've mentioned it a few times, and you alluded to sort of another core thing in aviation world, which is that as if I could describe the dynamic in in aviation decarbonization right now, you could tell me if this is how you experience it as well. Um, airlines are voluntarily making a lot of commitments. Actually, there's like a clear undersupply of sustainable aviation fuel, broadly categorized relative to um to the demand. What's available on the market today to be purchased, the actual purchase orders that are taking place are bio-based sustainable aviation fuel, which is generally from an LCA basis better than traditional jet fuel, um, but carries with it a bunch of challenges ranging from ultimately feedstock supply as we scale it up to the LCA not being zero carbon to risks around dedicated crops and land use issues and things like that. And so, you know, there's, this is one of those cases where there's sort of an incremental but nearer term set of technologies that are fuels in this case that are available. And where you do see, I think like you're starting to see meaningful purchase orders take place. And then there's the question of what happens in the long term and how do you scale up whatever the fuel is that's going to fuel planes to something that can achieve net zero in the the next few decades. And there you have bigger open questions. Do we electrify aviation? Do we fuel planes on hydrogen? Or do we use electrofuels or whatever it's going to be? So as you're committing to this, 2030 is a really interesting amount of time, I think, in aviation world. Cause in some ways it's sort of like, uh, it's like just far enough away that you could really focus on that next generation of things, but it's probably kind of tight if you're talking about real big volumes. So how did you think about that? And like, what does the first movers coalition commitment look like in the context of aviation?
0: Look, I personally think the aviation nut is the toughest one to crack. Um, and I think we're so lucky that we've got some really incredible companies. Um, You know, there's United who goes out there and says, we're going to meet our sustainability commitments with no offsets. Big deal. Um, we got Delta, who's already signed an offtake agreement for half of their FMC-compliant clean fuels. Um, By the way, the the FMC standard, the first movers coalition standard, is more stringent than the first generation of bio-based SAFs, right? Sustainable aviation fuels. That first generation will get you, as you mentioned, shale a life cycle reduction of greenhouse gas emissions of, let's say, 50%. Um, our standard is 85% reduction or more. It doesn't mean all based fuels are out. You could have next generation, fairly advanced ones, alcohol to jet, fissure tropes, um, processes, uh, that, that in many cases um, have some benefits that the first generation doesn't. Today's generation is based on waste oils, fats, and greases. As you mentioned, Shale, they compete with food crops. They don't have great greenhouse gas reduction. Oh, and by the way, they don't scale. Um, we're just, there's no way we're going to get to you know, double-digit percentages of these uh, fuels in our, uh, displacing our jet fuel mix. Um, the next generation of biofuels has a better shot at it, but still not infinitely scalable. Um, Electrofuels, as you mentioned, um, uh, have a better shot at being uh, much more scalable. Um, and so they, they clearly meet our uh, FMC standard you know, you capture carbon dioxide and combine it with green hydrogen. Or, by the way, we're, we're technology agnostic, so th- there are other pathways. Lanza jet will use its microbe on, you know, the exhaust from a, co- from a steel facility, um, produce ethanol, and then then convert it into uh, clean fuel. And, and that's another uh, really low life cycle reduction or high life cycle reduction uh, fuel. Um, but this is a tough nut to crack. That's why the aviation commitment is a lower percentage of the supply chain than any other commitment. It's 5%. So United, Delta, Apple, Salesforce, they've all said 5% of our jet fuel demand will be replaced with clean fuels that reduce emissions by 85% or more. I think we've got a couple other things going for us. We have folks across the value chain. So United Airlines or Delta buys the fuel directly, and Apple is their end user of like business class travel. And so there are ways to kind of smear the green premium across the value chain. Um, but I also think it's going to take some creativity for us to help these companies. First, in many cases, these companies are like, we don't know where to get this clean fuel that will replace our jet fuel demand. Like, who makes it? Um, and so we, we have been, you know, recently we had a dinner in Egypt where we introduced, you know, Lanzatech or Meg Highly Innovative Fuels, HIF, to, uh, to many of our purchasing, uh, companies. That's one function we'll play. Um, I also think that uh, in the aviation sector, we may see companies banding together through the First Movers Coalition and running reverse auctions uh, for this next generation of fuel. The last thing I'll say on this is the way our ethos is kind of backwards from everybody else's ethos. Everybody else's ethos in aviation has been, what's the best we can do right now? Like, how do we move the ball forward incrementally? And they've ended up with first-generation SAFs, which are probably not going to get us where we want to go. We've started with, in 2050, if you were to decarbonize aviation, what would it look like? it's going to look like like a large majority, a predominance of these electrofuels or very advanced biofuels. So let's work backwards. We only need a small quantity of those to hit the market this decade, but let's only focus on those things that are capable of getting us to near zero and not focus at all on the things that are incremental. Um, And and fortunately, some things like efficiency improvements are going to be super important and other people are working on them, and, and we strongly support them. But we're we're focused on the heart of emissions in aviation.
1: I'm, I didn't know this about Delta. You said Delta has already made a per, they've already committed a purchase order to meet half of their FMC compliant. So that's two point five percent of their twenty thirty supply.
0: That's right, and that's um, I think that's all I can say about it. Um, but that is in our our press release from from Egypt. So it was a wonderful announcement to make.
1: Hmm. But they they won't tell us what they're buying or from whom.
0: I think you could ask
1: them. All right, might have to do that. Um, that's pretty exciting. Super, super exciting. Two point five percent is not nothing. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so what comes next? So you said you know you've launched seven of the eight. I said seven, but that was because you haven't launched chemicals yet. So, uh, when when's chemicals coming? First of all, what does that look like? Because chemicals is everything else is. More of a I think every other category you've described is more of a monolithic sector than chemicals is. Chemicals is not one sector, right? It's like um, you know, a few relatively big things like ethylene and propylene and methanol, and then it's like a million smaller specialty chemicals. So I'm curious how you think about that. Um, and then after you've launched all eight, what what comes after that?
0: Yeah. Um great, great question. Look, I, I will readily admit that um Uh, The wickedness of this chemicals problem is the reason we have spent so long trying to figure out how to launch it. Um, it, It'll happen in 2023. Uh, At least we've gone ahead and committed it. That's a nice forcing function for us to do it.
1: You've committed that 100% of your uh, new FMC coalition groups will be chemicals in the year
0: 2023. Yeah, exactly. 100% of our new sector commitments will be launched in 2023. Um, uh, So I I, I will say... um, you, you mentioned many of the chemicals categories. I'd add fertilizer, by the way. Um, so that's, you know, th- th- there's a range of things. And so maybe what we do is we launch these in, in tranches. Um, there may be a fertilizer commitment. Um, uh, and there may be some of these other categories uh, that you mentioned um, to get there. So, so that's kind of what's next in terms of the sector commitments. Um, I should take this moment, by the way, to mention, again, this is not just me and my team doing this in the U.S. State Department. World Economic Forum as a whole team stood up to do this. And our knowledge partner, BCG, has been invaluable because they've basically helped us to to create these technical standards. And we work with a lot of other groups, technical trade associations, nonprofits, universities, the IEA, to come up with these standards. we got to do a lot of that technical work for all the different chemicals uh, subsectors. And then what's next? In addition to launching sectors, we have got to get real projects into the ground. One of the partnerships I'm most excited about is um, we're partnering with Breakthrough Energy. They're our primary implementation partner. As you know, Breakthrough Energy um, has an aptly named Catalyst program. Um, Great for this podcast.
1: I just want to say, this podcast was named Catalyst before Breakthrough, and also our funded EIP was named Frontier before Stripe. (laughs) It's just there aren't that many interesting words, (laughs) is what I've
0: concluded. Exactly. Um, So so, uh, the um, plagiarizing Breakthrough Energy folks have, (laughs) uh, uh, as you know, they're investing in demonstration projects in clean aviation fuels, um, clean hydrogen uh, Etc. And so many of these are things that um, we will be buying, like clean aviation fuels. So, in, through our partnership, our companies um, are ideally going to provide the offtake that enables Breakthrough Energy to build even more of these facilities. And we're going to do this across all of our sectors with different partners to make sure that, especially as we take advantage of the IRA, um, you know, Jigger Shah at LPO, who I know Jigger was on, on this podcast recently um, and is a good friend. Jigger's committed to invest in projects that have first-mover coalition companies as off-takers. Because, you know, that that de-risks his loan guarantee. And so you can imagine a clean steel project in the United States, for example. I'm not breaking news here. It could be any of our sectors. uh, With with one of our companies that have promised to buy the off-take from that facility, actually gets funded. Um, In in all of our different sectors now, cement, steel, um, maybe not aviation fuels entirely, in almost all of our sectors, it is now as... Uh, inexpensive to build the clean alternative as it is the dirty one, thanks to the IRA. That, however, is not true elsewhere. And so I think it's really important that we start to build some of this infrastructure in emerging economies. We mentioned India up front, where iron and steel is the fastest growing emission sector. It would be really great to get some clean steel plants in India. We have some Indian companies that are buyers. And so we, uh, we're we delighted to partner with something called the Climate uh, Investment Funds, the CIFs, which have recently launched a Industry uh, fund, uh, thanks to an infusion of capital from the United Kingdom and some other countries, uh, they are uh, going to be investing in these sorts of projects with our companies as off takers. So, again, we're going to go around the world, find ways to support people who are building the next generation of technology infrastructure and provide demand through our companies. Our only goal going forward is to get real projects, real steel, no pun intended, in the ground.
1: Yeah, I think this dynamic around the commitments that come from companies in the U.S. because of the IRA and Europe because of various policy mechanisms, but also just like in the global north versus the global south, where most of the most of the growth in manufacturing is occurring, a lot of the demand growth is occurring, and this is inherently this like global effort that you're undertaking. So um, like what else needs to happen for this to play out concurrently in the global north and the global south.
0: Totally. And this is a big fault line. You know, in in the last two years of traveling to countries, you know, I led a delegation to South Africa. And what the South Africans want to do is they want competitive, clean industry. Um, so they want to invest in their green hydrogen exports or green steel exports. Um, here comes the United States IRA. And basically, the only thing we heard from countries in Egypt was, um, hey, you guys are now the most competitive producer of these clean products in the world. What about us? Um, we even heard from some emerging economies who asked, could you carve out some of the IRA funding for, you know, clean hydrogen projects in this developing country rather than only in the United States? Um, and and so I think it's it's super important that uh, we, we be receptive to the the requests of these countries. Obviously, we're all locked in this, you know, great global competition. But developing countries... It's important for us to help decarbonize developing countries in these hard to abate sectors that will dominate emissions growth. So, we have the Development Finance Corporation. It's a U.S. organization. It invests in development around the world. Um, and, and we have a partnership with them to invest specifically in projects uh, that will have FMC companies as their off takers. So, American. Uh investment capital, our loans, for example, will go toward these hard to abate sector projects in India or Indonesia or South Africa. I think that's a very important thing that we should continue to do. Do you think that
1: at some point we're gonna want to stop calling these sectors hard to abate sectors because it's gonna be like too easy and out? In the same way, sort of that like at some point it we stopped wanting to call clean energy alternative energy. It like puts them off in these categories of like, well. You know, we all know that heavy-duty transportation is hard, so it's a hard-to-abate sector, so you know, maybe we don't take it as seriously. Like, I, I I don't think we're there yet, but I've been thinking that I agree that that's the correct, it's like the accurate way to describe them, but at some point I think we're going to want to stop calling them that.
0: I am totally with you, and uh, I, I think, again, if we were all, like, nerds about it, we would, like, one by one start to move the sectors out of that category, we'd say, ah, trucking, like, I think we can electrify this now, um, and move it out of hard to abate. Um, but from a, from a PR and communications perspective, you're absolutely right. Like, like, especially with the IRA now and with a lot of the technologies shale that you're investing in, by the way, thanks to you and, and Madison, we got to meet Sublime and have them meet our FMC off Um, Thanks to that, there are real ways to abate these hard to abate sectors, or at least not impossible to abate. Um, so I, I'm with you. I I think maybe we need a, a rebrand to I don't know
1: need to abate or something. It also not to continue on my soapbox on this, but it also makes it it implies uh, the opposite for other sectors, and I'm not sure that the right way to describe, for example, the power sector, which you would think of as being quote unquote the easier sector to abate. Like that, it's not easy. Just because it's maybe easier or more straightforward than aviation does not make it easy. I'm totally,
0: totally with you. Um, but but look, I, I will say there is plenty of attention. In fact, the preponderance of our attention goes toward the not easy to abate, but the easier to abate sectors. So th- there's something to be said for, hey, it's really time for us to if not entirely, shift our focus to equalize our focus to the stuff that totally gets neglected, um, and that's true in diplomacy. It's true in government policy. Um, I'm delighted the IRA focuses on on industry as well as the power sector, uh, and it's true in, in corporate commitments. You know, I really want to help companies not just you know do renewable PPAs, but but start to make these hard commitments under the First Movers Coalition.
1: All right, man, I've been wanting to do this one because ever since you guys announced the First Movers Coalition, I've been tracking it and uh, I've been very excited to see all the announcements coming out. So thank you so much for walking me through it.
0: Hey, I'm so grateful for the chance um, and keep up uh, all the good work. Really appreciate it.
1: Varun Sivaram is, okay, this is a mouthful, the Managing Director and Senior Advisor for Clean Energy and Innovation for U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. Well, what did you think? What do you think of advanced market commitments? If you're wonky enough to already know what they are prior to this episode, then you probably have opinions. You can send them to us by recording yourself on a voice memo or your sound recorder app on your phone and emailing it to catalyst at postscriptaudio.com. You can also just email us there if you don't want us to hear your melodic voice. That's catalyst at postscriptaudio.com. You can find the show on Twitter at, at catalystpod. You can also find me there. If you liked the show today, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. The show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.